Hello everyone, we're here on uh, MGR Unplugged, recording our new episode on a Thursday. And um, we have a variety of topics today, so I want to get started as soon as possible. But before that, I'd like to um, remind everyone that last week I had a very cool interview with uh, Bjorn, uh, Bjorn Benson. He's a young um, artist and a very talented kid. And um, the uh, interview actually had a quite a few... Uh, downloads and um if you haven't listened to it you should you should definitely uh go to uh mgrunplug.com and find it It should be at the top of the list and uh it's a, it's a very good interview is is um, amazing how uh thorough this kid is as far as his line of thinking what he does he only he's only 19 years old and uh he, he's really good as far as was his philosophy of life and what he tries to reflect in his painting so i definitely recommend that you uh check it out if you didn't so far and uh, without further ado let's get started with today's uh, podcast i have david with me um joining again and we have a few topics we're going to discuss disney we're going to discuss amazon a little bit of hotels some booking and hospitality and travel uh, Shopify and uh, pretty much everything else that we can get to without making this podcast too long. So uh, welcome, David. Hello. That's it. Hello. Come on, wake up a little bit. Well, do you want to start with Shopify? Yeah, we we can start. Actually, yeah, I think I think Shopify is probably the best uh, uh, topic to start with. So they they announced um, semi quietly, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure. If I they wouldn't made a, say it was quietly. Well, uh, but they didn't give a whole lot of details right, as far so as what it is. So go, go ahead and, and, and tell us exactly what the announcement was. So we have a little bit of a inside scoop on the Shopify Fulfillment Network uh, news, I guess you could say. So they they didn't do it quietly as far as the announcement goes. They announced it at Shopify Unite, which is their conference. I think that was like... A uh, little, mm, almost two months ago now, month and a half, and uh, I will, I will actually uh, write an article about that on our blog, on the MGL blog. I, I actually, they, they made some good announcements there beyond this particular one, but uh, go ahead and uh, right, right. They made other announcements, like some of the uh, one, the other thing that I was interested in. I'm curious to see how it works because I've seen other attempts at it. Was the AR yeah, stuff that was with a the very phone? Cool part. Yeah. I I think it definitely has potential, but there's been other companies who have tried that too with AR products, and it's never really worked. So I'm curious to see if they can get it's, it to it work. It looks like it's a little bit browser dependent too. So yeah, but the main thing is getting it to work on mobile. So if they have it on Safari and Chrome, which are right, the two biggest, right. no, then I it agree. works. And, and it also works for it, it works best for certain products that you need to see like a 360 view of the right. product. So for all the things, may I, not be. I've seen useful. tests like with a pair of shoes, or the more common is like furniture, so mm -hmm. you can see it in your house. That's cool. But uh, actually, I've seen one with art as well, where you mm. can put art on the wall and see how oh, it yeah, looks. Oh yeah, yeah, like a simulation. Yeah. Yeah, um, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, I've seen a lot of attempts at it. We'll see if Shopify can finally be the ones that actually mm -hmm. bring it to fruition. But anyways, on the Shopify Fulfillment Network, um, basically, uh, I had a discussion with one of our clients who is a Shopify seller, and uh, they were in talks with Shopify, with the Shopify rep, uh, on some of the details of the Shopify network. And then after I got that kind of scoop, I started doing a little more digging, contacted a few other people, and some. I was able to talk to a Shopify rep myself. And uh, basically, it looks like Shopify's fulfillment might actually be even cheaper than Amazon FBA. Um, again, this is just kind of early rumors a little bit of speculation i don't want to promise anything but from what i've seen there's going to be a, a couple key differences between shopify's fulfillment network and amazon's um shopify's fulfillment network for those who don't know it's going to provide two-day free shipping uh if you use their network so that if you have a shopify store it's only us by the way to start i don't know if what their international expansion plans are but for now it's just gonna be the us um it's basically so that just like with Amazon Prime, people are used to two-day free shipping. If you use the fulfillment network, then you're going to be able to offer two-day free shipping. But as far as the pricing, from what I've seen, one, the pricing actually seems to be at the same level as Amazon FBA and in some cases actually cheaper. But the key difference is Amazon charges on a per-unit basis. Shopify looks like they might be charging on a per-order basis. So if you have something that people buy three units of, 
instead of having, if you have a, let's say you have a $3 FBA fee uh, on Amazon, they're going to charge you nine bucks, you know, times three for each unit, even if it's one order. Shopify would only charge you the three bucks. It wouldn't well, be times let me ask you, per uh, unit. <clears throat> for that uh, per unit, is that you buy the same item, like three times, three things or three, uh, uh, units of the same item or is it three picks like you go Could to a warehouse anything. and they had to pick three different items from the three different shops and i believe it's just per order per order so regardless of whether the order includes five different items so they need to go to different that's what i've heard but again i don't want to Right, right. But this anything. is all. This is all basically. But if that's true, preliminary information. It could be significantly cheaper, or, or at least at the same level. And really, the biggest advantage that the two biggest advantages that Amazon has over Shopify sellers is one. Obviously, Amazon has a ton of customers, so you get more exposure on Amazon. But two is the fulfillment. It, Amazon has the best fulfillment. They even have one day shipping now for free. So that's the thing that's most difficult for individual uh, e-commerce sellers to compete with. Uh, and even larger e-commerce brands still have a hard time competing with that level of fulfillment. And this is, and obviously that's why Shopify is investing heavily into this because they see the opportunity. But does that mean that Shopify will have their own warehouse distribution centers? Yeah, like so they're going to have their own warehouses and they're also working with other third-party logistics companies. 3PLs is what they call them. And uh, But you won't have to deal with, it's kind of like uh, if you're a company who has a warehouse or owns multiple warehouses, you can basically apply, and then if, if Shopify accepts you, I assume you'll have to integrate some type of system to make it all work with Shopify's backend. Um, but once those warehouses will apply, and then they'll be added into the network. So it's not like like Amazon builds all of their own warehouses. And they own them too, right? Right, which has its pros and its cons. But Shopify is taking a more distributed approach, mm -hmm. and I think it could work. It's going to allow them to scale much more rapidly, obviously, because they don't have to basically create all their warehouses from scratch. They're utilizing existing ones. Um, but really the advantage is, I, I don't think Amazon is gonna be too worried about losing people, but I think a lot, many companies maybe, uh, basically I think the, the biggest thing that Amazon has is they have many more customer convenience advantages than the average e-commerce site is able to provide. But if they're able to close that gap, and obviously you have much higher margins on your own site than you do when you sell on Amazon and give them a cut of everything, and you don't have to spend, when you get all the first party data, there's a lot of advantages obviously to selling on your own site. So if you're able to close that customer convenience gap, which Shopify is trying to do, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a lot of sellers focus less on Amazon and focus more on Shopify. But do you think, obviously, Amazon is a universal online retailer that everybody can use, and uh, Shopify is more of a platform. So right. there are people online that sell via Shopify, other people use WooCommerce or BigCommerce or many other different shopping cart platforms that are out there. And those companies may also at the same time be selling on Amazon. So Shopify has a small portion of uh, right. Of I'm the not saying retailer. people are going to be leaving Amazon. I just think that maybe because one thing is ad dollars, right? That's a big right, thing. Amazon's trying to grow their ad revenue. But if people say, if a lot of people who are selling both on Amazon and on their own sites say, hmm, it's actually more cost effective to us to spend money on Facebook ads or Google ads for our own site, because then we capture that data so we have the customer forever. Right? That's the biggest disadvantage. I forget about the cut. Amazon takes a cut, but obviously any platform you use is gonna take a mm -hmm. cut. Uh, the biggest disadvantage is Amazon doesn't give you any customer data. And if you right. try to in different ways, a lot of times they're gonna, they can cut you off. And But I'm wondering if Shopify's intent is more than taking customers away from Amazon because they actually, Shopify works with Amazon too. But I think it's direct competitors. No, but it may be more to, to lure customers from other platforms like WooCommerce, of course, to of Shopify, course. from BigCommerce, from Xcart, you know, things like that. All the other shopping platforms or Sh shopping cart platforms into Shopify that has a more complete and robust operation. Shopify has direct customers, mm -hmm. WooCommerce, BigCommerce, Webflow is growing too. Um, and those are their direct competitors. Obviously, mm -hmm. use our platform or use theirs for your right. website. Amazon, I would say, is an indirect competitor because while they don't compete directly, Shopify doesn't, you don't go to shopify.com to buy things. But 
when you use a Shopify site, obviously a lot of times you're taking away revenue from something that could have been bought on Amazon mm. and vice versa. So they are competitors in a way, but I don't see them necessarily clashing. They, I they just, work together too. Yeah, they are like, it's, it's almost the same relationship between like online travel agencies and hotels. And we're probably going to touch on that a little later. Yeah, but exactly. uh, the, the OTAs that we call, uh, obviously hotels prefer people to book direct. Right. But if they book through an OTA, Obviously, they don't own the customer in the beginning, but hopefully that customer loyalty comes after the fact. That's a good example. A lot of people, most people don't go directly to website, hotel websites. They go to hotels.com or whatever, mm. Expedia, whatever. And uh, that's a good example where obviously the hotels are still making money. They're still getting the booking, but you have to give a cut to the uh, hotels.com. And not only that, hotels.com now has all that customer data and they're going to be advertising to them all the time. Right. And they're not necessarily going to be only advertising your hotel. They'll be advertising everybody. And it's kind of the same relationship with Amazon mm -hmm. and e-commerce sellers. Obviously, people sell on Amazon for a reason because there's lots of money to be made there. But I think that this could, like I said, close that customer convenience gap to where more companies will focus their efforts on their own e-commerce sites rather than Amazon. So we'll see how it goes. What, what um, any timeline for this to be rolled out? I mean, I know they said only uh, North America to start with, but um, yeah, they said about, they um, said hopefully by the end of this year. So obviously, they're going to be by left. invitation, or how do customers or Shopify? Yeah, users? you have to apply if you're a seller, if uh, Shopify uh, seller, and um, you have to meet certain requirements. It's not super high, but I believe if you're doing less than like six figures a year, uh, you probably won't be able to. So small shops probably won't be eligible yet. Um, but any real player on Shopify who's, you know, has a full, full time business basically should be able to uh, mm. work. Okay, well, that's good to know. I, I, I definitely want to be um, looking for that feature because we, we have a lot of Shopify clients and uh, if I mean, one of their their we also have a lot of Amazon clients too. So so or both and one of the things that we always have to factor in is when they list the products on amazon there's a whole new array of uh challenges and things going on and one of them obviously is the, the profit margin is much smaller than when they sell direct so um if shopify provides uh, a better margin and a better way to fulfill on a timely basis uh somehow competing with amazon not not exactly on the same day delivery or one day delivery but if two day i think is is very good. Um, I think that will be a very uh, viable solution for them. Yeah, I mean, I'm. We offer services for all of them, obviously, but I'm very platform or sales channel agnostic. W whatever I think is going to oh, yeah, works yeah. best is what I'm going to recommend. And right now, Amazon is still a fantastic opportunity, but I see the potential for maybe more, especially on the ad dollars front, shifting towards Shopify if it makes more sense. And that that will hurt Amazon because obviously one of the businesses they're trying to grow the most is the advertising business because it's such a high margin business. Mm -hmm. um, so like I said, those are kind of the details that we have right now, but I'm sure there will be more released soon. Okay. All right. So let me segue into Amazon. Since we were talking about them now, um, shipping and uh, a couple of other topics to um, Amazon just announced that they were going to uh, not renew their FedEx ground shipping contract, um, which comes to, uh, I think it's at the end of this month uh, when it expires. Very soon. Um, and then they, prior to that, they already canceled their contract for FedEx, uh, basically overnight or, or uh, express services that was back in June, I believe. And now they're also announcing that they will not renew or FedEx is not going to renew um, the Amazon shipping ground service. So this is almost like Amazon and FedEx that have had this love-hate relationship from the beginning I are, are breaking up completely now. I think it's not that big of a deal because Amazon's biggest shipping partner has always been UPS, not FedEx. Mm -hmm. I think this is probably a bigger deal for FedEx than it is for Amazon. Well, FedEx is the one that is that is actually right. uh, not renewing the contract. Right, because it wasn't profitable for them. Right. That's what they said. And I get that. But UPS has always been the major shipping partner. Uh, I think if you looked at the numbers, less than 10% of Amazon shipments were FedEx. So mm -hmm. it wasn't the preferred partner. UPS has always been the preferred partner. Plus, the one of the major reasons FedEx is doing this is because uh, Amazon has been creating their own fulfillment uh, or shipping, shipping company, really. Mm -hmm. And you've seen it. I mean, I've seen it. 
uh, Amazon trucks the, delivering the, the, to our the, house. The last mile is definitely Amazon. Right. It's more on the long distance, like ground. But even now, Amazon has, in the past couple of years, has bought hundreds of planes mm -hmm. for yeah, Prime they're, Air. They're having their own fleet. Right. So they're just any way that they can gain more control of the customer that's experience the exactly control that's what they want they, they want to control the whole th the whole um, aspect of the shipping process from or actually from the e-commerce process from from uh, even even inventory I mean they're starting to create their own brands and everything that we discussed in, in previous uh, podcasts but now they're also controlling the whole shipping process and uh, breaking ties or uh, basically not using FedEx anymore. They have UPS because they <clears throat> create this uh, extremely beneficial contracts with UPS as far as being their, their official shipper. So obviously the rates that Amazon pays to um, UPS are much, much lower than whatever your right. company will pay. And uh, in addition to that, they're also developing their huge fleet of uh, airplanes and uh, ground transportation. You and see these uh, 18 wheelers with Amazon Prime everywhere on the freeways now. They've been smart with their, what you call the last mile, because how it works is it's not Amazon owning. We I'm sure many people have seen the Amazon vans. Mm -hmm. If you haven't, you'll see them soon. Uh, but I've seen them and uh, they're not actually owned by Amazon. How it works is anybody, if you listening out there decide, you know what, I want to get into the shipping business, you go, you apply on Amazon's website, and you and basically they give you uh, basically buy the truck from them, and obviously with payments, and then I think they take a percentage of your revenue until you pay off the truck, and then there's even people who now have made a whole business out of it, and they own multiple trucks and fleets, and they employ other people to drive for them, so, mm -hmm. but they've done it in a uh, decentralized way, so that it's not so much of an upfront cost for Amazon, they're just hiring you know, it's almost like a step up from an Uber driver, really. Mm -hmm. Like you can become a shipper. Right. And they do that, especially in the in the markets where they can afford or they can provide the uh, same day shipping or one day shipping. Basically, cities like in Phoenix, we have a, a yeah, if distribution you live in a, center. A major metropolitan area, you probably have a warehouse nearby. And right. those vans are taking stuff directly from the warehouse to your house. Right, exactly. And, uh, and separately news, separate news on uh, Amazon, we have also the... Uh, We've uh, discussed this before, but they are becoming a little more strict as far as uh, seller rules, I guess, as far as listing products. And uh, I actually listed, uh, published an article on our website. Um, you can go to um, mgragency.com or mgrconsultinggroup.com, one of the two, and uh, look for basically the Amazon section or the Amazon section of the blog. And there's different articles there, but the one that we just wrote is about titles and do's and don'ts for Amazon listings. And uh, there's a lot of accounts that are now being suspended, banned. You <laughs> if you do a Google search for Amazon accounts suspended or banned, uh, you'll have tons of articles there from people, from forums complaining. Um, and it's just happening. I mean, Amazon is... is uh, making everything much more strict now as far as the listings and the procedures and the style guide and everything. And uh, so it's affecting a lot uh, of sellers that just basically without any bad intention, they just list their products and try to make it stand out from the rest with even stylistic changes like all caps and free and things like that. And then all of a sudden they get banned and they have no clue what happened. So yeah, unfortunately the days of and... We were actually discussing this off the air yesterday, but it's unfortunate that you see, because I see these all the time, because obviously, uh, you know, I get targeted with all of these uh, courses all the time from people. Yeah, just in the same with Shopify, like make your Shopify store and get six figures in a month or Amazon, get started today and make money instantly. And I'm not saying it's not possible, but, uh, you know, I've been dealing with Amazon for about five years now, and the difficulty of uh, basically the barriers to entry are a lot higher, and you have to be the the days of the Amazon side hustle. I think are over. I think you need to be oh, yeah, a definitely. legitimate business. It's, it's a full time commitment. Right. It's not a it's not a gig economy. I guess if you will, like uh, it, you you can't just uh, you know come after work and dedicate two hours in the evening to your little Amazon gig. Um, and it's not even just anything. that, it's just the capital requirements. Right. Before it was for, you know, basically the money that it costs you to get a small inventory run and then a little bit of ad dollars maybe and you're good to go, a few thousand bucks. But now, 
you know, two, three grand is just not going to get you anywhere on Amazon. It's going to cost you a lot more. And that's just the way it is. You know, unfortunately, it's becoming more like kind of the traditional retail world where, you know, if you want to get into Walmart or Costco, even for a test run, you're probably going to need six figures to get started, you know, and obviously they have their own financing options and everything. But uh, it's just kind of the reality of it. You know, there was an arbitrage in the beginning, but now they have 2 million sellers and it's much more competitive. And because there's so many sellers, there's a few bad eggs. And unfortunately, when you have 2 million sellers, all it takes is 1% of them being bad. And that's 20,000 sellers that are bad. And they have lots of liability problems. And we, I think we discussed this previously, mm -hmm. but they lost multiple court cases recently uh, that said that before was that Amazon was not liable for third-party sellers. So if they buy something like one, uh, I think it was in Tennessee, someone bought one of those hoverboards that were going crazy a couple yeah, of years ago, bur uh, burned the house down, yeah. and it was from some Chinese Company whatever that they disappeared right yeah. and then basically the court ruled no amazon you're liable and they ended up having to pay like i think it was two million in well, yeah and, and that and, and policing uh upc codes and i mean amazon was pretty relaxed as far as allowing pretty much everybody to just sell things and now they're trying to get their house cleaned up and and, all and that the together. on the fraudulent side there's lots and lots of counterfeits on Counterfeit, amazon exactly and they're trying to fight it but it's very hard. Right. Because like you said, before it was if it was one percent of two thousand sellers, okay, you have like twenty people that are delinquent or whatever, but uh now they realize they have a lot of sellers that are and they're going backwards retroactively trying to catch those people and they're also making it much more difficult for the new sellers that are more legit and they want to just uh, apply, and but they don't have all the information on how to do it. And then they just get banned right away and they don't know what to do. It's hard too on the counterfeit side because the people who are selling the counterfeits say, no, I'm the owner of this brand. And then the real owner of the brand says, no, I'm the owner. And now Amazon has to do an investigation to find out who's telling the truth. Like, let's put it this way. They still have problems with Nike and and Adidas counterfeits, which are major brands. You'd think that of all the brands that those would be the ones that you're not gonna find counterfeits that they have nailed down. But even there, they still have counterfeit problems. And that's with a huge multi-billion dollar brands. With average Joe, who just has, even if even if it's you have a very successful $10 million a year business on Amazon with your brand, that's very small in the scheme of things. And so you're very susceptible to fraud. And that's why they have lots of programs that they're, they're trying to get better. But uh, it is a bit of a wild west still. And the, and the problem is that if you come out, no, let's forget about the Adidas and the Nikes that have enough, enough um, um, legal power to fight their own situations. But uh, you come up with a unique product and it's successful and you start selling it and you start making a decent profit and you get good reviews and all that. And then all of a sudden somebody knocks it off and starts selling the same product using your name and everything. But it's obviously a much lesser quality because they they did it on the, on the following the cheap route. And all of a sudden, people that buy the product because it's been famous and all that, they start finding the quality being below expectations. They start leaving bad reviews, and you start wondering, what's going on? My right. product, why is it having bad reviews and, and negative comments and all the stuff? And then you realize that it's not really your product. Somebody knocked it off, and it's affecting your own, your own account and your yeah, own and revenues. Then they'll even undercut you on the price, mm -hmm. win the buy box. Right. And then you're not getting any sales. And then you're done. And then you try to fight that until and you find out. Because you can, you can one take customer actually did that. This is a real case. I mean, well, actually, there's, there are many real cases. But one customer was actually, or one seller was actually in that situation where they went from making a hefty profit and revenue from Amazon to basically going down to uh, basically nothing. And their product was totally negative reviews. And they actually ended up ordering their product themselves. And they realized that they received a knocked off Chinese copy version that was real bad and that's what happened and then they had to fight with Amazon saying hey this is a knockoff and then it took forever they had to well, hire lawyers you can go to court but the problem is that I'm sure very many people are aware the judicial system is very slow and, and expensive. so even if you go to court and 18 months later which is I would consider short but you know 18 months later you end up winning the case that's 18 months of revenue that's gone. And so that's why Amazon, Amazon realizes this and they're getting better, they have more programs, but 
it's just a fact of the matter. And, you know, again, that's one of the reasons why selling on Shopify has its advantages, right? Because no one's going to sell on your Shopify mm-hmm. site. It's your site. Right. It's so, control. But obviously, Amazon, at the end of the day in the U.S., half of all e-commerce purchases go through them. So that's the power they have. And it, again, I don't want to be negative about Amazon. Amazon has a great opportunity. No, no. It's, it's not- just the barriers to entry and the obstacles in Amazon are greater uh, than they used to be. Than they used to be. Yeah. yeah. And and it's not it's not about negativity. It's about knowing the rules it's of the game. Reality. It's about I mean, reality. The, there's there's new rules in the game. And uh, again, the, the 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 process to become a, an approved seller is much more strict now with documentation and, and which is good. It should have been like that from the beginning. And they probably wouldn't have these <clears throat> these issues right now. But because they were like a pretty pretty laid back and flexible before, now they're having to make it a little more more challenging and more difficult and then legit sellers are suffering that but let me let me go to the next step so so let's say that you're a, a good seller new account you have a good product everything is by the book and then you apply to amazon seller account and you have your product listing and then you get banned for whatever reason and you actually normally don't even know what it is what are the options that a person like that has as far as trying to get their product available and for sale and approved and everything else well, it depends what they got suspended for. Right. But in, in many cases, they don't even know. I mean, they had to do an appeal process and they get an email saying... Are you talking about a new seller or an existing seller? Either. Well, it's different. I mean, new sellers... Because we experience this a lot. We'll be working with people on their e-commerce, Shopify sites. Uh, and then they'll move over. They'll say, okay, we're doing well here. We want to expand Amazon. And then they run into a lot of problems just getting all the documentation correct uh, to basically get on Amazon. Um, so that's one thing. In, in those cases, a lot of times, they're just very detailed. The problem is that uh, if you're trying to get registered, um, there's almost no support from Amazon. You are... When you mean register is for their brand, brand registry? No, 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 just... that's different. That's okay. different. The Amazon, there's so many different reasons that you can be suspended. But I'm talking about when you first try to just open your account on mm-hmm. Amazon, it's much more difficult than it used to be. You had to have every, all your ducks in a row because if you don't, you're going to get suspended. And there's common things like a very basic thing. If you have a debit card on your account instead of a credit card, they'll ban you uh, or suspend you. If you have... Um, incorrect like if you put um, one address on your account but then when you submit a lot of times they ask for like a utility bill and that utility bill has a different address or something you'll get suspended like just little discrepancies um, can lead to you getting suspended and on the existing seller side if you've already gone through that process but then you're selling and then for some reason you get suspended it can be for a million different reasons and a lot of times it's uh like if you just get a if you get a few bad reviews on your seller profile and you have you're not meeting certain shipment expectations or you screw up fba shipments uh you can get suspended for those there's so many reasons why you can get suspended so it's just a case-by-case basis but and what about for existing accounts that all of a sudden get suspended i mean i I know there's um we work with um a few uh, consulting partners or attorneys that are specializing in those cases and you know there's there's they charge their own fees just because they know they know how to overcome those uh, obstacles that for some companies that are making you know five six seven eight thousand dollars a day to be suspended for some reason for two three days is is a significant damage to their revenue so why what what happens to sellers that are used to making a certain amount of money and all of a sudden they get cut off with not much warning or not knowing what's going on? Again, there's a list of 50 <clears throat> or probably more reasons that people get suspended. It could be anything. It could be, like we were saying, um, people could report your account for anything. Like if you get reported or something, it, it could be a competitor. I mean, it happens sometimes where you get lots of bad reviews. A competitor says, oh my gosh, uh, this product, like if you have a product with a battery and they say, oh my God, it exploded or whatever. And mm-hmm. then Amazon shuts you down and investigates. And then their investigation takes a month. And in that time you're screwed. Even if the person lied, you know, there's so many reasons. So it's just a case by case basis. I can't give a, a broad answer. 
Um, but yeah, the appeals process, you know, some things can be solved in a day or two and some things take months. It really depends. And you deal with this more on a daily basis, but uh, are there, do you talk to humans anymore or is it just basically sending emails back and forth, reviewing the status? How, how much of a human interaction you have during the appeals process? If you just do the standard process, not much. Uh, you're just going through their basically appeal system, which is you fill out forms, submit it, say what happened, right? They have an appeal system. This is what did you do wrong? What are you going to do to fix it? What are you going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again type of thing? And then um, getting like you, it's very, very, very difficult to get someone on the phone now. They, I mean, it's, we used to have phone numbers that I used to call. I had them saved in my contacts None of them work anymore. Uh, even on Amazon, when you go to contact us for seller support, it's just really hard to get anyone on the phone. You basically have to know somebody at Amazon. Um, and that's really the biggest trick is if you actually know people at Amazon, that's the best way. But obviously, a lot of sellers do not know people at Amazon. But that's what we found to be the best best method really okay well just to uh, recap this uh this topic um again there will be an article with a few details on what to do when you are um either an ex you have an existing seller account or you're trying to set up a new seller account um i have an article that is pretty specific about what to do or not to do with um in each situation and just basic stuff like David was mentioning that don't use a debit card for your uh, for your billing, use a credit card, you know, things like that that are like a, you have a card that says Visa, you think it's a credit card, but it's actually a, a debit card and then it's not accepted, you know, things like that. So there's some basic uh, do's and don'ts that um, there will be all listed on our article there and you can always refer to it and the article will be added to the uh the show notes too when you when we edit this uh, podcast. So I wanted to move on to the um advertising world uh, also for e-commerce a little bit not just not just advertising on Amazon but advertising in general for e-commerce merchants if you will that are doing campaigns whether they do it on Amazon or they do it outside of Amazon with their own channels like it could be social media Facebook Instagram um, Twitter even um, there's this kind of uh, misconception that when you're selling, you know, e-commerce things, that the budget could be very, very small, and um, and you're expecting to get a lot of, you know, sales and everything, uh, a huge ROI. But that actually is not true. It's actually far from the truth these days. The uh, the budget commitment for for a online store basically needs to be significant in proportion to the products that you're selling. And, and one of the things that you have to do is actually look at the product you're selling. Obviously, you sell a, a low-ticket item. It's different than you're selling something that is a, a big-ticket item with a pro probably a larger profit margin. So the main thing that you need to look at is the difference between you know, your margin, basically, what you sell the product for and what it costs you to, to create the product, to manufacture the product. And that, little, that difference is where it's going to give you how much budget you have for everything else, for promotion, marketing, advertising, um, overhead, everything that you have within your company. So in your experience, David, as far as um, um, social media, even Amazon ads, sponsor ads and everything else, what do you think is a good ratio of advertising marketing budget for a company as far as as a percentage of overall revenues, do you think uh, a company should say, okay, for um, I'm gonna basically dedicate 10% of my market of my uh, revenues to to advertising and marketing? At a minimum, I would say 10%. It depends. If you have a brand new product, you're gonna have to spend more on marketing, obviously, because people don't know what your product is. And listen, some products are more viral than others, so they get shared more organically. But a lot of products are not, and. Um, you have to play with, it depends on your margins too. If you have a really high margin product, then you can, I mean, we have companies that spend 20% of their revenue on marketing because they want to grow quickly and they have the margin to do so. Other companies don't have the margin. Obviously, uh, you have to play with that. A lot of companies say, listen, we're just trying to grow as fast as we can. And so we're just going to spend as much on advertising as we can just to break even and so that we can afford to keep buying more inventory uh, without losing money. But we're going to try to max out those advertising dollars. And that can be definitely a good approach because 
then at some point you can slow down your advertising and especially it depends on the product too. Is it a one-off purchase product or is it a recurring? If it's a recurring, um, which is kind of from what I'm seeing, more and more people are starting recurring businesses these days because that's the most profitable. Everybody wants to get that recurring income. Um, if you have a recurring business, then really you have to look at the uh, what's called, there's kind of two terms. Some people go by lifetime value. I don't like lifetime value because when you're a startup, you have no idea what your lifetime value of a customer is. And that works if you have 10 years. You of, don't know the lifetime of your startup either. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's like, you know, I see this a lot with companies saying, you know, the classic is the CAC LTV ratio, the customer acquisition mm -hmm. cost to your lifetime value of the customer. But when you're a year and a half in, you have no idea what the lifetime value of a customer is. If you have a, if the when CAC LTV works is when you're dealing with a company who's been existing for ten years, and they say, "Listen, we have a goal of three to one, four to one, something like that." Well, but they go by industry standards but, too. They, in certain in certain industries and sectors, they can say, "Okay, the typical uh, customer lifetime value, for example, in hotels, they say it's going to be loyal to a hotel for about twenty-four months before another offer comes by, whatever happens, and then they try a different brand." and then they like it or cars or you know things like that the the industry tells you that the typical customer will stick around for about two to three years before they are something happens and they decide to try something different well it depends it, it varies a lot but i would say the better metric that i actually like is what's called payback period and it's a little different than lifetime value lifetime value is the theoretical basically value of the customer is say, okay, they're going to spend, if you have a product that's 50 bucks a month and they're there for three years, that's what, 600, that's $1,800 is the lifetime value. Okay. But payback period is just what it sounds like. How long, how much revenue do you need from this person to basically break even? Cause then anything more than that is, is gravy. And I like payback period for younger companies much better than lifetime value. Cause you just don't know the lifetime value, but you do know how much it's going to cost to basically get your money back. Um, and so anyways, to get back to the point of the advertising, really you wanna look at what the payback period is and see how much you can max out your advertising if you wanna grow. Now, not everybody wants to grow as fast as possible, that's fine, it depends on your business goals. But if you're a company that's doing, uh, you have a new product, you started it and within your first six months, let's say you were able to reach half a million in sales and you say, we have a really good product, people love it, great reviews, we're ready to go, go, go. And we wanna go and be a $10 million company within three years. Okay, well then obviously you're gonna have to really spend a lot to get to that point or even more, right? If, if I mean, there's plenty it of- It is the size of the market, obviously. One of the uh, key factors in advertising budgets is how, how large an audience you try to reach. And you know, what I recommend to our clients sometimes is let's start with a smaller market, like maybe your local state, your border states, you know, so you limit the uh, the sampling of the well, audience a little bit. And depends then, on what you're selling. Well, I mean. yeah, of course, but, uh, but if you wanna do, you, you don't wanna start a campaign by trying to reach the entire country or, or entire world or, or, or things like that. You know, you, you want to start with a, test audience that represents the proper audience for your product, but in a limited fashion. So anything that you need to learn, you're probably gonna learn from this uh, target audience before I, you expand. I agree, but also in the beginning, and not just in the beginning, even when you've been running campaigns for two years, you actually a lot of times don't always know exactly your audience because, I mean, you have an idea, but a lot of times there will be new audiences that you test and that you don't even, you would never think would be customers for your product, but those that audience converts really well. Um, so I wouldn't, again, it depends on your budget. If you have a, a good budget to work with, then you can put a lot of your budget towards the people who you know for sure. And then you can put say 20% of your budget towards, look, maybe this will work. Maybe we can like kind of audience discovery, I guess you could call it, finding new audiences that you wouldn't have necessarily guessed would be into your product, but are. A, a, a good example is like, um, say you sell men's products, some type of men's product for uh, 25 to 40 year old men. That's your like core demographic. Now you might not think 
advertising to 25 to 40 year old women would work. But if you hit them with creative around, you know, different holidays saying perfect Father's Day gift, perfect birthday gift for the men, then those women, even though the product is not intended for them, they'll buy it as a gift. That's like the basic example. But like that, there's a lot of different examples. Right. I'm not think, I'm not talking much, uh, I mean, especially about the uh, the type of audience. I'm talking about the, the size of the audience. You can do exactly what you said, target male uh, females, you know, depending on the product. I mean, the, the 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 girlfriend, wife, whatever that wants to give something to her husband or boyfriend or something. That's fine. But uh, you can do that by limiting your campaign to let's say three, four states versus going to an entire country. Because at the end of the day, you're starting a company. You don't have unlimited budget, and and you don't want to spend whether it's CPM or um, or basically a, a cost per click. You don't want to spend all this money trying to experiment with a size of an audience that is 300 million people when you can experiment with 3 million people and see how it works and then expand into other states, you know. It's about the geography limit versus the uh, But I don't know the if type. geography is necessarily the limit. Well, yeah, I mean, if, obviously I would well, I would you, keep it to your country when you start wherever you are. No, I understand, are. but the country, like in the, you, in, the, in the example of the US, the country is a huge country. And if you have $1,000 a month, right, which but is you have basically- customers everywhere. Well, I understand, but if you have $1,000 a month and that's your basic audience, really you have $33 a day. And if you have a typical cost per click well, campaign- Well, if you're $1,000 a month- Hold on, hold on, month, hear me out. You have a typical- cost per click campaign where you're going to pay a dollar, a dollar 25 per click. That means that with your $33 a day, you basically have 20 people clicking on your app before it disappears. So I rather have those 20 people in a distributed through maybe one or two states that I can test or even not even states, even major metro areas than having 20 clicks in the entire country where basically I'm not going to have the campaign grow enough within a state because by the time one person click clicks is, is gone, you know? Like that's it, just basic. Basic. It, it um, depends on your product. It's very conditional. If you have a product that's say, uh, I don't know, like uh, a duck collar. Okay, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Little, no idea. A duck call where you blow the thing and it basically it's a sound that gets ducks. Anyways. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's like a hunting thing. Maybe in the south that would work better than I, I, if course, I have that product, very, uh, yeah, I'm not okay. going to advertise to people in yeah, New York they, city. I maybe. understand that that's a very niche product, but even if you have a, a new see. product, like a fashion product or something or whatever type of product that is not specific for hunters of whatever, you know, if you have a particular product, like a cleaning product or clothing product or fashion or this or that, you want to try it. Right. With a okay. So if I have rich. something that's like a high fashion product, I'm probably not going to advertise to rural areas. I would advertise to more metropolitan areas if it's like a high fashion thing. Of course. Because I'm not saying that people in rural areas don't wear high fashion, but it's more likely that they don't. So I'm not against geographic limiting. I'm just saying it's very conditional on what you're selling. Okay. Well, I um, I have a different idea about that, but I think we're not um, communicating properly on the, uh, on the size of the audience. I, I agree with you. I just think the, the market size I'm not that saying you start you, with. You can't limit your audience size, but I don't think geographic is necessarily the best way to limit it. I think, to, I think it's better to limit your audience size based on demographics and psychographics than geographic. Yes, but you can do both. That's my point. Of course. If you, whatever you do, whatever, uh, uh, the, you have your ideal target audience and you say, okay, let's say for the, this product I'm targeting male professionals between 25 and 55 years old, active, uh, they like sports, like, like adventure, they like dining out, whatever the product is for this kind of demographic. Okay, I have my audience there. Now I'm going to find these people in three states versus 51 states. That's my thing. The, this, the type of the audience is the same, except that you say, I'm going to test it in a limited geographic area to see what works or what doesn't. It's like a focus group, but you do it with certain states. So if you only have $50 a day to spend in advertising, you're not going to spend the $50 in 50 states because it's one click per state and it's not enough sampling for you to get any significant data. Whereas if you say, I'm going to limit this to even one city, I'm going to see more or less if it works or, or another city or something. And then you start expanding and learning from that and expand to other uh, a wider demographic area. But anyways... That's the different campaign strategies. I mean, it obviously depends on the product and what you're selling and all that stuff. So that's fine. But uh, the, the main point is that campaign budgets need to be right, I mean, people, people, people. When you said $1,000 a month, I, 
I don't it depends like if you're doing Facebook that's like bare minimum minimum what you can be what you should be spending well yeah if, I agree with a thousand dollars a month yeah you're gonna have to be really limited but if you have ten thousand dollars a month of course then you can take <laughs> eight thousand and do your main core audience and then take two thousand and do audience discovery and just do a more broad of audience course. of and course say, okay I don't know this is gonna be very top of the funnel and we're just gonna try to see if any of these people convert no, I understand. And you can have different uh, budgets for branding versus, uh, uh, you know, retargeting and all that stuff. I mean, uh, it, it obviously, the more budget you have, the more you can segment your audience and, and test and A-B testing and all that stuff. But uh, I agree, $1,000 a month today means absolutely nothing. It's if you have $1,000 a month, I would focus almost all on retargeting until you're able to spend more. I mean, I would do mostly retargeting. Right, but to get to retargeting, you need to target first. Right. So you need but to build a list. You don't need... To get to... With $1,000 a month, I would... Yeah, okay, if you're starting like from zero, you have no customers, exactly. obviously you're going to have to do some prospecting. But I would do enough prospecting until I get some people on my site and then just ramp right, up that retargeting. It's always better to... I would just... My goal, if I only have $1,000 a month, that means I don't have a lot of budget. That means I don't. I'm not making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. My goal is just to maximize because right when you have different campaign sizes if you're dealing with a huge campaign with you know obviously there's different levels but if you're spending 20 30 even more thousand a month you can have different uh goals and different allocations one is just for top of the funnel you're really not expecting much of a return on that you're just trying to get awareness for your brand but when you're at a thousand dollar level you just need to be maximizing the roi that would be my only goal right and, and that actually is a good point because that leads me to another topic or another sector that i wanted to discuss during this podcast which is uh, hotels and travel um, talking about retargeting, you know, you know how all the hotels are having a struggle trying to get people to book direct. I mean, the uh, the uh, online travel agencies and now the meta search engines are dominating the uh, the travel booking space to the point that the uh, independent properties, hotels, and resorts are having a hard time trying to get people to book direct. I mean, and they don't have enough budget. That's basically the point. They don't have enough budget to compete with these mega moth companies that are just basically their whole budget is advertising. The budget that Expedia has to advertise hotels in a city, which is what people look for, um, is huge. And no hotel will be able to match it anytime. Uh, booking, is it booking.com or Expedia? Which one's bigger? I think booking.com is bigger. One of those two... I think it was Booking, actually. Well, they all own um, a number of all Right, but I think Booking.com, the parent company, mm -hmm. is the biggest, yeah. the biggest Google ad spender, search spender in the world. But keep in mind that all these, they have their own... Uh, uh, first of all, the difference between online travel agencies and MetaSearch, a MetaSearch engine, which applies to any industry, but let's, let's stick to uh, hospitality, is a search engine of search engines, basically. So some people think that... Uh, you know, TripAdvisor or Trivago and all these as you see on TV are for, oh, that's an online travel agency, which is, is really not in fact an online travel agency by the mere definition of an online travel agency. Online travel agency is no different than the old-fashioned travel agency that was a store that you go in with a bunch of posters from different cities in the world and you go there to an agent and you say, hey, I'm planning a vacation and they, they book your flight and your hotel and everything else and they give you these paper tickets and all that stuff. That was the old style travel agency when they became online. It's just basically like online shopping. You go online and book your hotel, your rental car, your airplane and everything else. The meta search engines like the Trivagos and TripAdvisors and Google hotel ads and all that stuff. And those are the ones that actually... Um, search the internet for the best offers and then they list them for you. But then what they do, they don't actually book direct. They actually send the traffic to your property. So even though they have a commission because you need to advertise with them and be present and to be at the top four listing or something, which is the one that gets the best results, you need to pay like in any other campaign, you pay per click and all that. But then once people decide to book um, your property, you own the customer, which is what we said before with, with uh, Shopify and Amazon and all that stuff. So the hotel actually gets to keep the booking and own the customer. So it's a trade-off because the hotel is saying, okay, well, I'm going to pay whatever percentage or whatever budget to a meta search engine, which means that, yes, I'm going to end up having a direct booking, which is what I want. But hopefully after that initial expense to advertise through the meta search, that customer is mine. And I can market the customer not only... In the future, but also from the moment they book until they come, I can start 
uh, upselling offers, offering different um, you know amenities and things like that, and then I can continue marketing that same customer in the future. We're talking about customer lifetime value and all that stuff so, because I own the customer. So we were talking about this the other day. But if you were to open uh, MGR Hotel, okay, and this is your hotel, you completely control everything. And we were talking, because obviously, you know, we're in client service. And I think anybody who's in client service knows that you're not always going to get your clients to do exactly what you think is best. And that doesn't mean we're not always right either, but uh, you kind of have to work with that. But if it was MGR Hotel or Hotel MGR, what would be the marketing strategy? Because my idea would be I would have pretty much two major budget allocations and one minor. The minor would be just to the branded search terms, like you said. If someone's searching MGR Hotel, exactly, I'll advertise for that. But other than that, I'm not doing any search ads. I'm just putting all that budget to Meta To me, to me, it's very clear, yeah. I, w I would do branding ads, branding, like very little hard selling on Facebook. I would just try to do lots of branding ads, lots of top of the funnel stuff. And then maybe a little offers on the retargeting end into existing customer database but i would just do tons of branding on facebook and then go hard on the meta search for my budget and that would be pretty much most well, of my I mean, strategy it, it's not exclusive i mean you can do obviously all of them well you're limited to budget that's what I mean. right right but what, what i would do and this is not what i would do but it's what i would tell what i tell our customers to do uh, even though it's not our most uh, profitable option because obviously we're dedicating our sending people to meta search which is a third-party advertising platform but if it were me like i say if it was me advertising my property what i would do is anything that is a branded term i will keep myself because i don't want anybody to be taking credit or advantage or profits from me for the brand that i own so if people look for MGR hotel or let's just say a real hotel like Western this or whatever because they have heard about it They've been there before whatever you've already kind of earned that customer, right? I agree so, with so, that. So so you want to keep that because a you're gonna pay less per click because you own the brand or the brand or term and Secondly your conversion rate your is conversion gonna be higher. Rate can be really exactly. High. So I don't want to subcontract that kind of campaign to anybody the the ones that are more wide range campaigns, specifically the location-based campaigns. Right. When you go to um, Google, which is what everybody does, and says hotels in San Francisco, that's where meta search is gonna be there. You're never gonna be, the first four ads are gonna be the huge online travel agencies or meta search engines that are there, like Expedia, Trivago, Tra uh, TripAdvisor, whatever. But then you're gonna have the meta search block with the first four hotels, and then you get lost in all these hotels and all these choices, and a little map with all the pins and all that stuff, and you see the rates and all that. That's all meta search. So when you go there, it's very hard for the small hotel or even the large hotel to compete with every the first page, because no matter how much you do, I mean, as far as paid, forget it. I mean, there's no way you can do that. And if you go organic, you have like four or five spots in the first page, on the first page of results. Yeah, not to mention the meta search slot takes up a lot more space than well, your exactly. regular ads. So you're not even I mean, going to be it's just, it's visible. Just, it's just, you know, the way the economy is going. Google is in the business of making money. And they're giving you this free, free real estate on a website, and they're going to make a lot of money. And if you have any questions about that, look at the last, uh, you know, Google quarterly report where they made like, what is it? Thirty-six billion advertising. That's what they do. They're not giving you Biggest brand real estate. The they world. say, "Yeah, we'll list you," but it's going to be page three. So, if somebody's going to go all the way to page three to find some organic listing for some article, good luck. It's fine, all that stuff. But you need to pay to play. So, so as far as my my budget will go to, I would say Meta Search for now, at least for all the location terms, hotels in this and that or whatever, and try to pay enough to be in the top four because then you need to click on view more and it's below the fold, whatever. You know, that's kind of dubious. There's different theories about that. But definitely made a search for those terms and then I will have my own branded campaign completely separate. That's for the intent, okay? That's for people that are looking for hotels in San Francisco, whatever. In addition to that, I will definitely do, as you said, social media, which is more on interest because social media is more viral and then you can check with people and have a whole social media campaign. There's no meta search for social media. It's all based on and it's audiences. visual. There's no visuals Exactly, on exactly. And you can make your audience demographic and target much more granular to a certain extent that you will do with Google in certain areas. And especially doing for um, 
interest topics. So you can have a lot of audiences and lookalikes and everything else that we, we do with social media, where you can not only select your target, but also you create friends of friends and everything else, and you have pictures and you have testimonials and all that stuff. And then it's a different environment that is much more social. That's where social media. So um, that would be my approach. And, and the, the goal is to get the customer through the door no matter what, because then it's up to the property to make sure that the customer keeps coming back. There's no substitute for customer service, customer experience, um, uh, good stay, all right. that stuff. If you have a crappy you know, hotel, uh, no right. marketing is mean, going to work. We're, we're already assuming that the hotel experience is going to be good, that you're going to find it, that you're going to have a good stay, that the booking engine is working well. All those things that look like, oh, plus, plus, plus. No, that's that's the very basic. If you have a people that actually find your hotel versus the online travel agency or a mirror search engine, and they go to your hotel and they decide to book direct, and then you have a crappy booking engine that is too slow, that is not mobile responsive. Uh, you don't promote your loyalty plan, which is basically the incentives that people look for when they're going to book there, so they come back again and all that stuff. You need to do all that so you earn the customer for the next time because whatever money you spend in the first time for the first booking, then more likely you're not going to have to spend it the second time. The customer will just come to you. I was going to ask you, actually, now that you mentioned the loyalty plans, because you wrote an article, too, about that recently, and uh, how you wouldn't think that the smaller hotels would be able to, right? Obviously, you know, Sheraton or Marriott or, uh, you know, big, big chains have their loyalty programs. But even small hotels, when they make their own loyalty programs, they seem to be working really well. What, what did you kind of find on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, people look, I mean, everybody's used to getting something for nothing, all the credit cards, as you know, is the most lucrative business out there. All the credit cards give you double points, triple points, 20,000 points just for signing up, uh, transfer your balance, whatever, because they know that they can give away that incentive in the beginning, and then they're going to leave you or you're going to stay with them for at least 12 months, 18 months. They have all the studies. So they say, even if we're given 12,000 points, which in dollar money becomes maybe you know $100 or 150 or whatever the exchange point is they know that they're going to make that money because you're going to use that card or that hotel or that car or whatever down the road so the loyalty programs are like a it's a good magnet or a hook to get the customer engaged for a while until another loyalty program comes so right but the thing incentive. is that you can capture their data with the loyalty program right. that's the biggest advantage you offer them free parking and wi-fi or something like that mm -hmm. and then which is isn't which really the cost to you is nothing it's but you're at least now you have that data you can send them emails you can take their customer data target them on facebook display and, ads and you know i mean there's tons of studies about this some people can search online or whatever but um, the biggest incentive the biggest reason why people like to join loyalty programs is not because they get, I mean, yeah, it's because they get free of this or free of that, but the biggest thing is because of upgrades. Like you go to an airline and you fly coach or whatever, and then you have a loyalty program and you're not gonna have enough miles or whatever. Normally you're the average citizen that travels maybe three, four times a year, visit family, whatever. Um, so you're not going to accumulate enough miles to get like a free ticket here and there, but you probably have enough miles to say, okay, you know what? This trip that is from coast to coast, if I can use my miles and go from coach to first class, that'd be great. Yeah, there's nothing better than getting <laughs> upgraded to business class or right, first exactly. class. So that's like what that. they use because that's something that is more affordable and you're never going to pay twice or three times the cost of a ticket to, to upgrade to another class, but you'll pay with the miles basically. So, so that is one of the biggest things. And for hotels, it's the same thing. You get a normal double bed hot room or something and you can upgrade using your, your loyalty plan to basically a suite. And then you say, you know what, this vacation, I want to have a better room, more room or, or a larger um, living space, whatever. So you get an upgrade. You're still thinking about or planning on spending three, four, five, six, seven, seven days in a hotel. But instead of a normal room, you say, I'm going to just upgrade using my miles or my points or whatever you have with loyalty programs. So that's the number one uh, thing used for them. And then obviously people like to be able to use the points for all the things that are not just the rooms. Like they can use it for restaurants. They can use it for a run of golf. They can use it, you know, throughout the property for whatever they want, dining and things like that. So, but yeah, the loyalty program is a big incentive. That's why hotels will spend or will forgo the fee of being on MetaSearch or even an online travel agency but then their task is to earn the customer after the fact, 
you know, even if it comes from an oil and travel agency, which is the worst because they're paying fees as high as 30% sometimes, which basically means that by the time the guest stays in the hotel, they, they, their profit is almost nothing or very little, depending on the, on the season and the, on the rate for the room. Um, if they do a good job and the customer experience is good, that customer that came from Hotels.com Next time, there was a little bit of uh, searching blindly which place to stay, location, this and that. Right. Ultimately, Next time, they will say, you know what? I stayed at the Westin San Francisco in San Francisco, and I loved it. And next time, they're going to search for that property. Of course. Ultimately, the best marketing is a great product. Right. But the thing is that people need to start thinking long term. That's the key. What happens is that the challenge is that everybody's looking at making this ROI or return investment today. And sometimes that ROI is going to come in 12 months. You need to start planning a little more long-term. And one of the challenges that a lot of people that are making these decisions or where to spend the money, they don't even have that long-term tenure themselves. It's like we were talking sports too. It's like you're making decisions that will be beneficial in two, three, four years, or maybe they completely fail in two, three, four years. But the problem is that you don't know if you'll be at the same job in two, three, four years. So you're looking more at being... Um, looking good today, this month, next month, the following month, more than saying, you know what, I'm investing a lot now, just so in 12 months, right. we have all these customers. We, we discussed that because a lot of, uh, you know, I'm a big basketball fan and a lot of GMs will basically just, like if they have a lot, like the Lakers recently traded a ton of draft picks from 2023, 2025, 2026. Okay, the Rob Polinka, who is the GM now, knows that if he doesn't make this team with LeBron good right now, he's going to get fired in a year or exactly. six months. He's anyways. not going to be dealing with so the consequences. He doesn't care about the 2025. Exactly. Exactly. But that's on the in, on, in the real world, in the hotel world, or any business. Any business. It's a. It's really on the. It, it's on the leadership. It's on the ownership to decide. Because they're the ones who are going to be on the hook, ultimately, if things go badly. So they have to have the long-term mindset and hire people and incentivize long-term thinking. Everybody needs to be on the same page. Because if you're just looking at looking good month after month on a 30-day term basis, I guarantee you you're not going to do any business in a year or two years. The, the bigger companies, the ones that are bidding you to the punch are the ones that are thinking now 12, 24 months. Google is planning their strategy now for 2025. You know, the, the fact that Google has become a sneaky online travel agency themselves is incredible. You know, you go to google.com travel and you have lo- or uh, flights or something. You can not to bo- mention Amazon is doing it now <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. These companies are starting to dominate everything. And it's convenience, like you said. It's, it's basically making it easier for customers, for clients to get what they want done, whether it's purchasing something, booking a flight, getting all the information. And if you are sending them from A to B and then the, the third party booking engine and this over offer, and then the terms and conditions are confusing. No, just do this. This is the rate, pay now and you're done. It's very simple, you know, and especially invest in campaigns and budgets and marketing that will work beyond a 12 month time frame. Otherwise, Sorry, you're going to look good today, right, but the, 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 the yes man today will be the, the reasons why you know, um, you're under the radar today are the reasons that are going to make you disappear tomorrow. It's a balance. You have to do what keeps the doors open today, but you always have to make sure that you're uh, focusing on the future and not just what's right in front of you. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, then you're going you're gonna to miss out, basically. Right. All right, one more thing, David, before we leave on... Um, I know that um, and this is something that I need to kind of learn myself because I didn't um, listen to the whole story. But I know Disney made some announcement earlier this week about streaming a bundle. And I know we talked about the uh, Disney Plus is the service. Yeah. And I'll be talking about this probably more on my podcast, which will come out soon. Um, but basically, they if you didn't hear, um, Disney announced a bundle between Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu. Uh, for those who don't know, ESPN, or I'm sorry, Disney bought Fox last year, and part of that was now they uh, ended up buying out uh, Universal's stake in Hulu as well, at which and part of the Fox deal was was Fox's stake in Hulu. So basically, Disney owns Hulu now, um, and so they're offering a bundle for 12.99, basically 13 bucks a month for Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu. 
which happens to be the same price as the standard option of Netflix, which is the plan that most people have. Um, so for 13 bucks a month, it's a major competitor. It's a major alternative, that's for sure. Now, I'm not saying that Netflix is going to lose a ton of people, but they did for the first time in what seven years lose subscribers in north america uh they were reported last quarter so we'll we'll see what happens i think the major thing is that the other competitors the cbs all access and uh, hbo max that they're trying to roll out and all these other media companies i don't think they're going to be able to compete with disney and uh i think the majority of consumers will probably pick one, two, maybe three at the most streaming services and say, okay, these are the ones I have. And if people already have Prime, which a lot of people do, half of Americans now have Prime, uh, and then they have Netflix and they say, okay, maybe I'll get Disney. But I don't think they're going to be going more than that. And that's the real challenge. That's the real thing. And I think Disney's winning the game massively because they could charge $20 a month for this, but they're mm -hmm. charging 13 because... They want the customer data. That's getting back to the first party data. They want the customer data. They want to own that relationship and they want to win the streaming game. And I think that they they will. Is this also starting in November when uh, Disney Plus starts or? Um, I'm not sure. Maybe. I mean, I know Disney Plus comes out in November. ESPN Plus and Hulu already exist, obviously. So probably in November then. Um, I'll have to check on that. I'm not 100% sure. Okay. All right. Well, that does it for today. I think um, we've uh, covered pretty much everything we wanted to do. Um, as always, all the show notes will be on the website, um, mgrh.com, and you can also reach the podcast by uh, going directly to uh, mgrunplugged.com. And um, we have another, I have another uh, podcast interview. I'm recording it this weekend, I think. Um, but I need to confirm it, but that will be airing next week. And um, it's supposed to be um, very entertaining as well, similar to the one that I did last week with uh, with Bjorn. So uh, hopefully you can listen to that one too. This one will be available pretty soon as well, probably by the weekend. So until then, have a great day, weekend, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you.